Okay, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, some poisonous theological trends. Actually, this week and next week, this morning is just all going to be introduction for next week. I started working on it and the introduction got so big, I thought, you know, we probably should just do a whole message of introduction um, and uh, and then we'll we'll get into some of the more specifics next week. Every year, every year, 200,000 people die from medical prescription errors. Some deaths are caused by reactions to medications or patients accidentally taking the wrong medication or too much of the right medication. But the majority of deaths are due to mistakes made by well-intentioned medical professionals who accidentally give people the wrong medication. More die every year from this than have died in the Korean, Vietnam, Gulf, Afghanistan, and Iraqi wars combined every year. That is amazing, isn't it? That that many people would die every year just by mistakes, errors, information errors. The irony of it is that the medical Prescriptions are designed to help people get better. They're supposed to help them. And the medical professionals who are distributing them, they want to help people get better. They went to school to help people get better. And yet, many, many people die because a little bit of information is off. Well, I think most of us are aware that Satan and his demons major in distributing error. They're into the propagation of error. Because they know that if people believe a little bit of information wrong, it can damn them to hell. Jesus in John 8:44 said to the religious hypocrites of his day, "You are of your father the devil." And you want to do the desire of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. There is no greater sin, no more deadly, dangerous poison, no plague so common and terrible as doctrinal error. It is Satan's trump card. It is his nuclear weapon. It's his bread and butter. It's what he focuses on the most. Because he knows that if he can get people to believe a lie, he can steal glory from God and he can damn men to hell. And so that's why he does it. Because he is against what God wants. Amazingly though, most professing Christians today never even think about doctrinal error. They don't even care about it. It is inconsequential to them. They just go on in their life telling people they're Christians and that's all that matters. And what you need to realize is we are living in the spiritual dark ages. We have more access to Bible information, to Bibles and books and commentaries. We have more access to information in our culture than any other culture that has ever existed in the history of the world. And yet we are probably the most biblically illiterate society that has ever existed, even more illiterate than the people of the dark ages. At least they knew God created the world. You go up to the average person and say, well, tell me about pneumatology. Ecclesiology, providence, concurrence. What? They don't even know what those words mean. They have no idea. And if they've heard them before, they can't give you an answer. Even if you ask people the basics, like explain to me from the Bible that Jesus is God. Tell me the state of man, God's plan of salvation. Define for me the gospel. Most people who call themselves Christians can't even do that. They can't even do that. People who do not understand God's word, his truth, sound doctrine, they are walking targets for Satan to shoot at. They they have no discernment. 
They cannot tell right from wrong. If you don't know truth, you cannot tell right from wrong. You cannot have good discernment. So put this together in your mind. We live in a society in America where most people call themselves Christians but know nothing of the truth. That makes them vulnerable to every doctrine, every aberration that comes down the pike. They are like those Paul described in Ephesians 4.14, children tossed here and there by waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. They're like corks in the sea, like a feather in the wind. They're just blown about and flit about in doctrinal limbo. They have no idea what true is. And most people don't even care. Our society just doesn't care about truth anymore. Truth is irrelevant. We are living in what is called a post-modern society where the only absolute truth is there's no absolute truth. And that's all. You can believe what you want. Make up your own God. Worship your own deity. Do your own thing. Create your own reality. You know, develop your own system of morals. God doesn't exist. We evolved out of slime. Truth is nothing more than your personal opinion. And the sad part about people who are deceived is they don't know they're deceived. Because if they knew, they wouldn't be. They're unaware they're taking a spiritual prescription that is going to cause them to sin or worse, damn them to hell. They don't even know that. And it's no wonder that professing Christianity is this way. Churches have stopped preaching God's word. You know, if you come to this church all the time, you may have no idea of this. I talk to people who say, you know, you always talk about, you know, how the church is in really bad shape. But, you know, it doesn't seem to be that bad. Well, it's not that bad here. You need to realize that many people who call themselves Christians, most of the people who call them Christians, never go to church, never read their Bible. They only pray when they want God to do something for them, and that's it. We live in a society where people think they're Christians because they call themselves Christians, or because they go to church, or because they want to be associated with that group. They have no idea what the gospel is. They have never experienced a transformed life, regeneration. You go to their homes, they have libraries of fiction books and rows and rows of music CDs and stacks and stacks of DVDs. Then you look at their theological library, if you can find it, then it's telling. People do not care about truth, even most Christians. They will spend money on cars, they'll spend money on furniture, they'll spend money on a million things, but not to know the truth. And Satan, with his many entertainments and fads and fashions and arts, is choking the word out, and so that even now, the group of churches and Christians who actually have a good understanding of the basics of sound doctrine are becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. I want you to know, I am at war against doctrinal ignorance. I am at war against that. And people say, why are you always teaching doctrine over there? Well, why do all the people always come? And people go, well, you know, you can't just sit there and teach for an hour and a half and have people come. No music. No music. No singing, no drama, no skits, and no cappuccino machine. Although some people come from Starbucks with something. (laughs) And people sit for an hour and a half and listen to doctrine. Why? Because they're starving for it. People are starving for doctrine. And most churches aren't even teaching it. Ever. From the pulpit or anywhere else. And I want you to know, I can't handle personal, I can handle personal attacks on me and my family and I can handle the economy fluctuating and bad traffic and air pollution, but I cannot handle doctrinal error. I am at war against that, and you should be too. As a Christian, you are commanded to wage war and take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. We're going to talk about that more next week. 
We should all, with the psalmist, hate doctrinal error with the utmost hatred. And that is why every year I spend a a Sunday addressing doctrinal error. And this year, I'm spending two. Next year, it'll probably be three. But if you're out there wondering now, is, you know, is, I mean, is this something we really need to do? Let me first try to persuade you that doctrinal error is a big deal with God. Do you remember in Matthew 7, verses 15 and 16, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Beware of false prophets. There's a little command for you. Are you obeying that? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? You are to be aware that false prophets are out there. Examine their life and look at the fruit of their life. In Matthew 24, when Jesus is asked by the disciples, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus describes the age in which we live. And in verse 4, he says, see to it. That no one misleads you. Now when Jesus tells you that, you see to it that no one misleads you, that requires you to take some action, doesn't it? I mean, you have to do something to see to it. See to it is an action. And we are to take action against not being misled. He goes on in verse 11 to say, Many false prophets will arise and will mislead Many. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders and he said this, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and that from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Paul says, listen, I know that as soon as I leave, what's going to happen? False teachers from in and from without. Wolves. Now, he uses the metaphor wolves because wolves have big teeth. Well, their big teeth is doctrinal error. That's how they devour people, with lies and deceptions and slightly distorted truths. And so there is the command, be on the alert, which requires you to pay attention to what you're learning What's going on? In Romans 16, the end of the epistle of Romans, Paul says this, Now I urge you, this is verse 17 of Romans 16, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause hindrances uh, and dissensions contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. Verse 18, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. You don't want to be one of the unsuspecting. You need to know that these false teachers propagating false doctrines are out there. And don't be unsuspecting. In other words, be suspicious. In 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul tells Timothy, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. I mean, you may think something is unconscionable. You may think, I could never do that. Well, these people have their consciences seared with a branding iron. They will take people to the cleaners, seduce women, pillage, plunder, do anything. They're wicked, they're false teachers, and they're using people. And it, you know, you think, how could they do that? Because their conscience is seared with a branding iron. In Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. You have to ask yourself, why does the word of God have so many passages like this? And this is just a small sampling. Why is there so much emphasis in the New Testament about truth and sound doctrine and teaching what is right and refuting what is wrong? 
It's because God hates false doctrine. He hates it. False teaching is insidious because it causes people, often with good intentions, who want to obey God, to systematically sin against God. To sin against God. They think they're doing the right thing and they're doing the wrong thing. And those who are deceived unwittingly become purveyors of false doctrines themselves. And Satan loves it. He loves this. Satan and his demons do not materialize and say, Hey, I'm a fallen angel. I'm rebelling against God. Let me tell you a lie. No. What they do is they deceive men. And those deceived men become their instruments, their pawns for spreading their doctrinal error. Now, when you look at doctrinal error, there are basically four categories of doctrinal error, false teaching. Let me just explain them to you. This is from better to worse. First, you might misinterpret a text and teach true doctrine, but from the wrong passage. Let's say I'm up there in my study. I'm studying a passage and there's, you know, a couple different interpretations. I interpret it that it teaches one thing when in fact it teaches another. Now, the thing that I'm teaching is true. It can be supported from other texts. I'm not teaching doctrinal error. What I'm doing is I'm misinterpreting the text. I'm teaching truth, but from the wrong passage. What's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is in 2 Timothy 2.15, we are told to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We are to be workmen, diligent, unashamed, precise interpreters of the word of God. We have to do that. If we don't, we're sinning. And so even if you are a hard worker, and even if you do your best, you can still misinterpret a text and teach truth, but from the wrong passage. That is kind of like the mildest form of false doctrine. Secondly, and slightly worse, is to have a false view about what we think God is going to do in the future. For instance... There are four different views of when the rapture will occur among those who are premillennial. That is, who believe Christ will come back and set up a thousand year kingdom, and then the eternal state will happen after that. Now we teach what is called the pre-tribulational view of the rapture. Now, let's just say we're wrong. So what does that mean? Well, we've misinterpreted a lot of passages, so we've blown the 2 Timothy 2.15 thing. Not only that, but we have taught others what is wrong. And now we enter into the tribulation. And so we go through part or all of the tribulation. Okay. You know, I mean, when we see the Antichrist, you know, our view is probably wrong. (laughs) And it means God will preserve us. During the tribulation, like the Israelites were preserved in Egypt from the plagues, not like Enoch who was raptured out before the flood. And as the tribulation prophecies unfold, it become obvious our view was wrong. But no one is damned because they have the wrong view of the rapture. Teaching any false doctrine would be wrong and sinful and to be avoided. But such doctrines as the rapture and things like that, you know, if we don't have it right, We're not going to hell. It's not plunging us into any sort of immoral behavior. Thirdly, there is a kind of false doctrine that causes us to sin against God and others, but still doesn't damn us. Let's say that someone comes along and concludes that Christians should never seek medical help. And Edward decides that we're going to start handling poisonous snakes during the service. And that we should not practice baptism. See, those are things you think, man, that is, I mean, you've got to be kidding. Well, people believe those things. And you can believe those things and still know Christ, still trust him as your savior, still be saved. You just, it's wrong. You're doing what's wrong and you're teaching other people what's wrong. It's not a damning error, but it's definitely a false error and it's leading other people, yourself, into sin. Fourth and finally, the worst kind of false teaching is a damning heresy. A damning heresy is something that you believe, and if you believe, if you die believing that, you are going to hell. You know, that salvation is by works. Or that Jesus is not the God-man. He's only partially God or partially man. 
He's not 100% of both. This kind of doctrine error is damning. You have to have the gospel right or you cannot be saved. You have to trust in the right Jesus or you cannot be saved. You have to appropriate the truth in the right way or you can't be saved. False teachers, of course, being deceived by Satan, promote all sorts of gospels that are just slightly off. Ways of salvation that are very close, but just off a little bit. You know, not huge deviations, but just enough to damn people. And false teachers fill the pulpits of churches around the world. A few are like well-intentioned pharmacists who make mistakes and accidentally give their congregations deadly spiritual prescriptions. But most of them, they're wolves. They're using their congregation. They're using their position. They're using their power. They have no love of God. They just like the position and what they can gain from the ministry. People of Calvary Bible Church, you need to listen to me now. Good intentions and sincerity don't save anyone. I don't care how sincere you are. How honest you think you are. There is one way, one truth, and one life, and no one gets to heaven except by that one way. And that one way only. It is a narrow gate. And few enter it. You have to strive to enter that narrow way. You remember what Jesus said to those people who came up to him on judgment day in Matthew 7, 21 and 22. Lord, Lord, have we not? And they list all these things. And Jesus said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity into hell you go. I never knew you. Think about it. These people are in church. These people know who Jesus is. They even call him Lord and they're even doing works in his name. And they end up in hell. Why? Because they believed a lie. That's why. They were deceived. And they didn't know the truth. And you may think, well, false doctrine like that doesn't exist in churches like ours. Think again. You just talk to any of the pastors. One of the things we do when people come to us, we talk to them about their salvation. A lot of times people tell us, yeah, yeah, I, I'm a Christian. How do you know you're a Christian? Well, you know, I've tried to be good and I've, you know, grown up in the church and, you know, I've never murdered anybody. And that is a damning heresy. That person is damned. They're trusting in their own good works to save them. And what's amazing is people say, Jack, how come you're always hammering away in the gospel? I mean, you know, we're all Christians, aren't we? No. No. Then it's amazing, yeah, that people can hear the gospel week after week and then come in and say, yeah, I've been pretty good. And This happens. It happens. And if you die trusting in your own good works to save you, you are not trusting Christ to save you. It's either Christ, his righteousness, his person, his work on the cross, his resurrection, his gospel, or nothing. There is no other way. Under heaven by which men must be saved. And that is why false teaching is such a big deal. You cannot be co-redeemer with Jesus. You don't get to say, oh, uh, thanks for dying on the cross. I'll just throw in my works there, chip into the pool, and we'll save us. So what are we to do about false doctrine? Well, as you expect, the scriptures give us several courses of action. Let me just give you several. First, course of action Use discernment. Use discernment. Don't just go willy-nilly through life going, Oh, yeah, well, that's a nice view. And yeah, that's neat. And I guess so. Proverbs fourteen fifteen says, The naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. In Acts seventeen eleven, Luke writes about the Bereans who heard Paul preach the gospel. And this is what Luke says. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. I mean, they were listening to the apostle Paul. They said, Paul, that was fascinating. We're going to go see if you're right. They opened up the scriptures and they examined it and said, you know, he is right. They didn't just say, well, you know, 
he's a good teacher. Well, we'll just accept him. I mean, he's passionate, so he must be right. In 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul says, We are to constantly be examining everything carefully and holding fast to that which is good. Be examining everything carefully. Are you doing that? You know, I talk to people and they say, oh yeah, I just turn on the Christian network. You know, that is such an oxymoron. That is like, that is like pumping doctrinal sewage into your house. There's so much trash and doctrinal error that a lot of times people listen to Christian radio all day and Christian TV and they're so confused they don't know what they believe. They're just confused. Turn over to John chapter 4. In John chapter 4 verse 1, we see a course of action we are to take. All the way through the book, John is telling us, this is what a Christian is, and this is what a Christian is, and this is what a Christian is, this is what a Christian is. And when he gets to four, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits and see whether they are from God. Now some have said, just stop there for a moment, some have taught incorrectly from this passage and said, well, this is, the, this is a, a special gift that certain people see, that they can see demons. And they can discern what demons are good and, and uh, they know if demons are behind different teaching. And it's like, ooh, man. First John, sorry. <laughs> I look out there and J- Jim Stone was doing this. First John 4, sorry. Yeah, come on, come on, get the pages over there. First John, sorry. <clears throat> Remember, these were added. My people later, these verse references, so they aren't all that important, but they do make it handy getting places. <laughs> it's my justification for my error. So he says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see where they're from God. He's not talking about sensing demons, but look at the middle of verse one. He says, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. When he talks about testing the spirits, he's talking about testing the teaching of men and determining which ones are false. That's what he's talking about. Because many false teachers have gone out into the world. And of course, he's talking about these people who don't have the humanity of Christ right. But the same is true for all of us. We need to beware and not believe every spirit, but test every... How do we do that? By the scriptures, by the scriptures. Second course of action, not only do we use discernment, second course of action, expose and refute error. Paul, speaking of doctrines that promote sinful behavior in Ephesians 5, 11 through 13 says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. In other words, when you hear a teaching and you know it's wrong, you take the light of scripture and you shine it upon that truth to make it evident that it's either a lie or it's true. There's been times when I've taught people, you know, who, you know, have grown up in a background. I remember teaching some people who, a a, a pretty good group that came out of a, a Nazarene background. I started, I got to a passage and it talked about predestination. And, and so I knew all these Nazarenes were there and they'd never been taught that. And one man even told me, no one has every passage that mentioned predestination. My pastor just would skip. And um, now I knew that all these people there, I, you know, you can't just go up to somebody like that who's been raised in a church and taught something like that all their life and say, you need to change. That's not persuasive. You know, I, I mean, who am I? But you know what? If they love God, and they usually do, and they love God's word, this is what persuades them. So... You very carefully answer all of their questions from the scriptures. You know what all those people said? Man, it's crystal clear. People just need to be shown from the scripture. That's what he means about exposed by the light. It literally means to reprove or rebuke by the truth. To take the error and shine the truth on it and make it evident that this is wrong. 
Paul, at the very beginning of his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.3, tells Timothy to do that. He says, I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Timothy, I want you to go to Ephesus. I want you to stay in Ephesus. And while you're there in Ephesus, I want you to be exposing truth. <coughs> Correcting those who are in opposition. Quit coughing. I'm just getting over a cold. If you start coughing, I'm going to cough, and then that's going to make it bad, because I can't get away from my face mic. In Titus 1.9, we are told that the elders must be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Think about that. If you're going to be an elder in the church, you have to know doctrine well enough to teach others doctrine and to refute those who are in doctrinal error. If you can't do that, you can't be an elder. It's just the way it is. So, we not only have to use discernment, we also have to expose and refute error. And thirdly, our third course of action is guard and warn the flock. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then he goes on to speak about false teachers rising from within and without, which we already read. Yeah, you have to guard. And what does that mean? Does that mean, you know, put a fence around the church? No. Does that mean, you know, get guns and ammunition and shoot at the people? No. What is it talking about? It's talking about guarding from error. That's what you need to guard against. You know, you can take a Christian and, and shoot a Christian and, you know, they just go to glory. They're just going to be with Jesus, freed from sin. You know, I don't, don't do that. It's murder. That would be a doctrinal error. But what damns people, what kills their souls eternally is a false gospel, a false gospel. In 1 Timothy 6.20 and 2 Timothy 1.14, Paul tells Timothy to guard the truth. So false teachers need to be exposed, rebuked, so that the truth can be guarded. You don't just accept them and go, well, I know you have a different gospel than me, but let's be brothers. No, if he has a different gospel, one of you is not a brother. One of you is a child of Satan. You know, people often offended when I'm preaching and I use names from the pulpit. <coughs> they think to themselves, well, you know, do you have to name names? Jesus did. Paul did. Luke did. John did. Peter did. So I'm going to. I said, well, why? But why do you have to do that? Well, Let's say I was up in my office looking out the window and I saw somebody put a landmine in the parking lot. Some terrorist. Now, I I tell you all, I want you to know there's a landmine out there somewhere. Don't step on it. Oh, is that helpful? Would that be good for you? No. What you want is specifics. Where? Right here. This is it. That's why you need to name names. Needs to be specific warning. I'm not doing you a favor by saying, hey, you may get blown up. I just should go home from church today. I'm warning you. It's out there. And then everybody wanders out and Yeah, that wouldn't be helpful. Some say, Well, you, you can't name anybody from the pulpit unless you do church discipline. Well, that's if you're doing church discipline. Yeah, if there's a false teacher in here and we confront them and they refuse to quit teaching false doctrine, yes, we will kick them out and we will warn you because that's what we have to do as a local body of believers. But if there's somebody else and they're writing books and they're on TV or writing articles or preaching publicly, then they're open for public censure. So we comment on it. No, we don't have to do church discipline on them. Paul didn't say, well, you know, I'd tell you about Alexander the coppersmith, but we haven't done discipline on him. Now, before we get into the doctrinal specifics, which we're actually going to wait till next week, I just want to kind of give you kind of a broad overview of the state of Christianity in America. 
Because I think a lot of times when you come to a church and you're, you're hearing the Bible taught and you're involved in ministry and maybe discipleship and things like that, you may think to yourself, you know, what's the big deal? I mean, isn't, I mean the church doesn't seem like it's in that bad of condition. Oh, it is bad. It is really bad. And I just want to give you some things so you're not ignorant of the state of Christianity in America. The visible church in America is just a total disaster. There are many buildings, many quote so-called ministries, many programs that are quote Christian. That's true. They're called that. But do not be ignorant and think that there are just, oh, there's tons of churches that teach God's word and sound doctrine and try and evangelize the lost. There's lots of them out there. No, there's not. There's very few. We have people all the time who leave here and move other places and search and search and search and cannot find a single church in their entire town where the Bible is being taught. You know, most churches in America, this is what they think about Calvary Bible Church and churches like Calvary Bible Church, that we are freakish, that we are dangerous, that we are hate mongers, divisive, unloving. We're fundamental extremists. That's how they see us. We actually believe the Bible is true. We actually believe that God spoke the world into existence in six literal 24-hour periods. How ignorant can you be? We, we actually believe in a hell. And then only a few get to go to heaven. They think that, that to them that is just absurd. You can go to most churches and never hear the gospel preach, ever. You can sit there for a year and never hear a clear gospel presentation, ever. I recently attended a large conservative Bible church. If I told you which one it was, you would, you would moan. I mean, I went there because I thought it was good. There was never a single mention of sin, of judgment, of wrath, of hell, of repentance, or salvation. Jesus was only mentioned once at the very end in a prayer. The whole sermon was an innocuous 40-minute historical lesson. The gospel presentation was, would you like to receive the love of God? Said it about eight times. You know, some of you might need to receive the love of God. Can that save you? I mean, who wouldn't want to receive the love of God? Okay, I'll I'll receive it. Does that make you saved? I felt like jumping out of my seat and say, what? He's missing the important part. You are a sinner. And you need saved because God's wrath is upon you. And this is how you get saved. But I didn't. And you know that if that is what is happening in Bible churches, what's happening in the churches who don't even believe the Bible is true, who never teach from the scriptures, what's happening in those churches? I'm telling you, it is scary. It's scary. If you have the stomach for it, sometimes when you're on vacation or something, just go to some mainline denomination and sit there and get a clue. It is scary. How bad it has become. There's various kinds of Christians, professing Christians in America. First, you have the majority of people who just call themselves Christians. They're Christians because they're Americans, and America is a Christian country. They never go to church, they never read their Bible, they only pray when they want something from God, you know, when some terrorist bombs a building, they ask for God's blessing. That's the extent of their Christianity. And so you may be talking to somebody and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, I am too. And that's what they mean. Yeah, I live in America. They have no idea what the gospel is, how to be saved. They're they're lost. They think that you become a Christian by just claiming that you are. That's all. Most people who call themselves Christians fit into that category. Then you have your mainline Christian denominations, most of which have gone liberal. 
You have the Roman Catholic Church, which teaches work salvation, the worship of Mary, idolatry, mysticism, and a host of other false doctrines and heresies that cannot be found in the pages of Scripture. You have the Protestant denominations like the United Methodists and Presbyterian Church of America and Lutherans and Episcopal churches, just to name a few, that have just totally imploded doctrinally. You know, you, you say, well, you know, fornication and adultery, it's not that big a deal. You know, you could be a homosexual, a homosexual pastor, or you can be a lesbian gay woman pastor. I mean, come on. You know, there's freedom in Christ. I get on the internet and look at it. I, I looked at some, wait till, wait till next week. <laughs> yeah, I want to feel like pounding on my keyboard. <laughs> And you know what? If the founders of most of these Protestant denominations, if you could resurrect them from the dead, they would just throw up with dry heaves over this. It's so wretched. It's so bad. It's so wicked how they justify their sin. And then when somebody like us comes along and say, hey, you know, um, you know, the Bible does say right here that that is wrong. You are so unloving. You are so divine. You, you homophobic. You, you, I mean, you know, there's all these labels. Why? Well, I just said what the Bible says. Well, you can't believe everything in the Bible. That's an ancient book and that's cultural. That's how it is in those mainline denominations. They're going down and they're going down fast. Probably the Southern Baptists are the only ones who are maintaining some level of conservative doctrine. The rest are in there. They're in bad shape. Thirdly, you have the cold, dead Orthodox churches. These are independent Bible churches, community churches, reformed churches, who at one time were thriving, had great teaching. They have a great history behind them. But over the course of time, the Christians kind of become ingrown and self-preserving, and the church begins to stagnate, and people quit sharing their faith. And they've come cold and they come become passionless and they don't have any zeal for God or holiness and they go through the motions. The teaching is monotonous and dry. I'm a Christian. Would you like to be a Christian? <laughs> you, know, I, you know, it's really, it's exciting. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, I just praise God. I'm just so excited about being a Christian. Huh, don't tell anybody, pal. <laughs> and the quality of doctrine is sound. The doctrinal statement is good. There's no evangelism going on, which means there's no new Christians being led into the church. There's no leaders being developed, no leaders being trained, no discipleship happening. And the church begins to shrink and the younger people start disappearing. They come to church and go, man, this is irrelevant and then over the course of time the congregation because they can't pay the bill starts selling off their parking lots and then they become one of those churches that has no parking small congregation and what happens the pastor gets old and dies too old to preach they close the door somebody buys the building turns it into a restaurant Cold, dead, passionless orthodoxy. Fourthly, and on the opposite extreme as this, is the charismatic movement. The Pentecostals. Third wave church. Man, they're excited about God. Praise Jesus. They're excited. Hallelujah. They're just frothing themselves up in an emotional frenzy. I got a revelation. God spoke to me. Let me tell you what he said. I feel the spirit moving. La, 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 la. They pretend to deceive themselves. They're, they're, you know, oh yeah, we have the sign gifts operating in our church. Well, how come they aren't operating in the world since they're given for unbelievers? Why don't you go out there and heal people instead of having people in controlled environments trying to heal their back aches and ear aches? Get out there. Heal people. Go empty out the hospital. Well, you can't do that. That's right, you can't. Let's get real. Do what Jesus and the apostles did and heal all manner of disease and sickness or be quiet. Quit trying to say that you have the same spiritual gifts when you don't. And everything's about feeling and everything's about emotion. And God spoke to me and I sense God is telling me this. I know the guy's an unbeliever, but I feel like God's telling me I should marry him. That's not God, that's Satan. 
God never moves you or senses you or feels you contrary to his word. You say, you guys need to get into some biblical exposition, you know, go through the Bible. Oh, that is so technical and dry and boring. And that would kill our delusion is what would happen. They want to try new things. Everyone's have their own new revelation. I don't know if you read the paper, but in the Daily News on Friday, December 30th, I was working on this sermon. I was getting some tea, and I looked in the counter, and there was the illustration. Youths believe in church hopping, it said. The article started off talking about a teenage girl who first goes to church with her family, to the boring church, and then goes to the mega church to hear the band choir of 250 people and enjoy a nice Christian rock concert. Where, and they had a picture up there where people are swinging and people are laying on the ground and reaching out towards the band screaming. Oh, you're worshiping God. The article says many youths go church shopping even to other faiths in an attempt to meet their social and spiritual needs. Uh, Their spiritual need is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, committing to a local church, being involved in the ministry, placing themselves under the oversight and shepherding of godly men and women. One parent interviewed said, quote, I saw that my parents' relationship to Jesus Christ and my relationship to Jesus Christ were different. And my kids aren't going to relate to Jesus Christ the same way we do. And that is to be expected because Jesus Christ is your own personal Lord and Savior, end quote. Now, since he's your own Savior, you get to define him like you want, worshiping him like you want, because he's your own Savior. He's not somebody else. He's yours. Now, does that sound to you like one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and being of the same mind and the same spirit to you? Doesn't sound like that to me. Sounds like everyone gets to define Jesus and worship him the way he wants. And what's amazing is they quoted Jose Zayas, who is the director of teenage evangelism for Focus on the Family, who said, quote, we see it all the time, everywhere. They gravitate to where they feel a connection. They're more pragmatic than their parents' generation. They look to what works for them. I think it's healthy, end quote. Does God want us to make decisions on what makes us feel good, what we think is good? How can you be involved in serving in church if you're church hopping? How can the leaders of the church oversee you if you aren't there? Since when is going to church about getting what we want? This is the total consumer mentality, which we're going to speak about in a minute, brought into the church. Church is about getting what you want. No, it's not. Church is about getting what God wants from us. Do you know why we sing? So God gets praise. You know why we give? Because it's an act of worship to God. Do you know why we preach the Bible? Because God says to and God needs to speak to his church. That's why. This is about God. It's about believers gathering together for God, to be God-focused, not self-focused. The charismatic movement is plagued with this kind of thing as people strive. They just want to feel good. They just want to feel good. Well, so do people who take drugs. They want to feel good. People want their own revelations, their own dreams, their own visions, inflated without cause by their fleshly mind. They are concerned about Bible and doctrine and what the Bible says. They just kind of pluck verses out of context and say, oh yeah, well it says right here, it's in this verse, what is the context? I don't know, but it says that. And although I criticize the charismatic movement because they're hysteria, there are some good things in that movement. They have a passion for God and a zeal for God. It may not be in accordance with knowledge, but I'm telling you, they are out there sharing their faith. They're doing. They're giving. I have people call me up all the time. Oh, I said, you know, I heard you're building a new building. We, 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 we you know, raise funds for churches. We just got through, you know, raising $85 million for such and such a church, charismatic church. $85 million. Oh, yeah, they have a whole park and waterfall and streams, a little indoor Christian mall, you know, cafe. 
Shopper mentality. Listen, people like to shop. Well, we'll just create a mall. You know, it's a little Christian things attached to it, and people can come and get what they want. You know, it works for me. It meets my needs, spiritual needs. God tells us what our spiritual needs is. God tells us how we are to worship. And although there's some flexibility in styles and order of service and when you worship, listen, the things that are mandated have to be complied with. They have to be complied with. You have to go to the scripture first and find out what is mandated. And then, yeah, you can do whatever as long as it doesn't contradict what is mandated. You know, doctrine is good. But if doctrine becomes emotionless, if there's no passion in your life, something's wrong. And this is the danger of churches that get good teaching. You can come to church and you can just kind of get, oh, that was good, that was convicting, and no one ever does anything. It's like, yeah, I need to be sharing my faith, but no one ever does it. Yeah, we need to pray, but no one ever prays. And you just become complacent and, you know, theologically fat-headed. You become like the guys, I'm really excited about my faith. Really? Yeah. You you ever thought of becoming a Christian? Uh, No, thanks. (laughs) I don't want to become like you. And when you know the Lord and you know God's truth, it should make you excited. It should be, it should thrill you. You should be psyched. I was just telling somebody that when I type my sermons, I get so excited, my hands sweat, I have to take them in the office and run them under hot water just so they get warmed up so I can keep typing. They're sweating right now. Doctrine is good, good teaching is good, but doctrine is to be applied, is to be lived out. And if there's anybody who's to have passion and zeal and fervor for the Lord, it should be people who are getting good teaching. Because we know what's right. We're going to go do it. Not just, yeah, we know what's right, and that's not the end of it. And granted, doctrine should, should never be derived from our emotions and our feelings and our passions, but... When you're a Christian and you know the Lord and you know the truth, you should feel it. You should have passion and weep and cry and rejoice and praise God from the heart. It's worship the Lord in spirit and truth. The spirit part is the emotions and the mind and the thoughts and the feelings. The truth is the doctrine. So you just make sure that all those feelings and emotions conform to the truth. But don't just snuff them out and just have truth. Because as soon as you do that, then you lose your first love and you become the cold, dead, orthodox church. Fifthly, you have those involved in the seeker-sensitive or church growth movements. This is such a huge movement right now. It has swept the globe. They're, in Russia, they're trying to figure out, what do we do with this? And many Baptist churches in Russia are starting to buy into it now. It goes like this. You've got a boring preacher. Your church is shrinking. What do you do about it? Well, instead of firing the preacher and get somebody in there who can unload the truck, you say, well, we, how are we going to attract them in? They're, you know, they won't come anymore. Maybe it's the pulpit. Yeah, they, just, they don't seem to be, you know, one to come here. Let's market. Let's survey the neighborhood. Find out what people want. Get a big list, summarize it, and give people what they want. Let's appeal to their fleshly needs. Let's ask the children of Satan how we are to construct our worship services. That's a good idea. And you know what? We'll get them to come in. We'll keep everything light, give them kind of a cheap version of Hollywood, some skits, some drama, some professional music. Keep the sermon short, non-confrontive, kind of self-help, real practical. We won't mention anything about sin or judgment or wrath. We definitely won't do church discipline. That would empty the whole place out. And then we'll tell them, you're coming to church now. We've got all these people churched. Well, church isn't a place you go to. Church is what you become through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Once you become saved, you are the church. You don't go to church. We gather together because we are the church. And we assemble together. 
the church in the building, but the building isn't the church. And if they come into the building, it doesn't make them part of the church. The visible church, maybe, but not the real church. The gospel of these churches is all about grace and mercy and compassion and the love of God. And the believing, unbelieving seekers come week after week and they, they feel this great. Oh, that was a good song. That makes me, every time every week, I just feel so great. You know, people say things, Jack, you are, you are so in your face. I mean, why don't you lighten up a little bit? You know, like sometimes I just feel like you're like jumping down my throat. Good. <laughs> why, why do you do that? I mean, you know, why? You know, whenever you teach on Sunday night, you're real laid back, you know, but when you preach, man, you are like in your face. Yeah, yeah. You know why? Here's why. I would rather some believers leave here offended and go worship someone out. They're already saved. They're getting to heaven. Than to think that one person could sit here week after week and never come to Christ. That doesn't settle with me. So I get into people's face. I mean, I know how I am. I don't like wimp, wimpy sermons. The best sermons are the ones that where the guy just gets out of board and just hits me. Hits me so hard that I'm just convicted of the core and I just realize I am such a sinner. I need to get my act together. I love that kind of preaching. Hurt me. <laughs> I don't know, people go, oh, you know, it's okay. You're good and I'm good. And, you know, let's just feel good. You know, people like, go to these churches, they're so motivated. You know, people pay for entertainment. I mean, we all know that. We're living in the entertainment capital of the world. People are willing to pay for entertainment. That's why churches like this give, you know, $85 million. Why? I can come to this place. There's no drugs. There's no alcohol. I can come to a wholesome environment. I can be entertained on Sunday morning. I mean, everything I want is there. There's a whole bunch of nice, friendly people. I might be able to find a wife. But you know, biblical excess is not about gathering a whole bunch of unbelievers into a building and saying, now you're in church. Biblical excess is about having God's word in your heart and doing it. Regardless of the consequences, Jeremiah had a successful ministry and no one repented. John the Baptist had a successful ministry and they cut off his head. Jesus had a successful ministry and they crucified him. Successful ministry is not about getting a whole bunch of people into a building and saying, hey, you know, we kind of did a very light version of, uh, you know, truncated gospel presentation. You know, we didn't mention the sin, salvation, repentance, death part, wrath of God, judgment part. But, you know, God is love. And, uh, you know, if you want to receive the love of God, come forward and receive it. Biblically mandated approaches to ministry cannot be rejected. Now, if we have freedom, we can do a lot of things a lot of different ways. But when the Bible says, when you gather, you do this, we have to do that. The church is the place where believers come in as a group, assemble to worship, to give, to praise God, to hear from God's word, to be equipped To go out into the world and share the gospel. When people come to Christ and they become part of the church, they bring them in. That is what the Bible teaches. Sure, there's always unbelievers in every service, and that's why I preach the gospel frequently. But church is primarily for believers. Believers to worship God. You have to remember that when unbelievers gather, they can't worship God. It's impossible for them to worship God. Do you realize that? An unbeliever who's spiritually dead who doesn't know Christ, nothing they do is acceptable to God. They are hostile to God. Their prayers aren't heard by God. Their worship is not accepted by God. You bring them into the building to a worship service. You're deluding them. You're deceiving them. You're leading them astray. They think, yeah, I go to church. No, you don't. Yeah, I just went to a worship service. But you didn't worship. Oh, yes, I did. No, I have news for you. You are dead. When it comes to worship, you need to believe in the gospel. And so what happens is, is we propagate all sorts of error. Good intentions. I want you to know 
You know, the Rick Warren and Bill Hybels, you know, I don't know them personally, but I am sure they have good intentions. They want to reach their community. They want to see it happening. They want to see a lot of people saved. And they're doing the best they can. But contrary to God's word, to draw people in, you can go to the hula service. Seriously, the Hawaiian luau service. You know, you can go to the surfer service, and you can go to the mechanic service, and you can go to the old people's staunchy hymn service. Whatever you want. We'll give you a variety. We'll give you whatever you want. You want the cappuccino? Sure. You want the McDonald's playland? Sure. You want this? Sure. We'll give you that. Whatever you want. Just come in. Come in. Come in. And we'll talk to you about the love of God. No, that's not what church is about. Church is about being holy. God wants holiness in his church. He says, remove the wicked man from among yourself. Any so-called brother, if he be an immoral person, remove him. Remove him. You imagine what would happen. One of those churches said, hey, we've got a person here. He's been an ongoing sin. And we want you to know we're kicking him out. What would happen to this church? Man, there would be a stampede. People would run. Okay, well, that's more than enough for today. (laughs) You can see why I had to do this in two messages. All right, well, let's just pray and ask God to help us beware and be warned. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your many warnings and your word. And Father, we just want to acknowledge that Calvary Bible Church is not the perfect church. We have many areas where we are pretty pathetic in our prayer and our evangelism and our, a lot of times our zeal and commitment to you and your word and the truth and knowing the truth and discipleship. And Father, a lot of times when we worship, our hearts are distracted and Father, we, we are not perfect. And yet, Father, you have told us to examine everything carefully to be warned to beware and father as part of that we want to just stop for this week and next and examine some of the errors that are out there so that we will be warned and will not be led astray into them because we do want to give you glory we want to worship you in spirit and truth and father we know that's the what pleases you and we want to please you so we desire to do that in your name pray this in Christ's name. Amen.